HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Coming up on Eating Matters, I'll be speaking with Michael Horwitz and Lindsay Shute about fair and living wages for farmers. Stay tuned. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today's show will be the second in a two-episode series on food and labor. Last week, we spoke with Saru Jaramayan about fair wages for restaurant workers, and today we're going back in the supply chain to talk about how labor issues and policies have an impact on farmers and how those impacts might be different. What are working conditions like for those who actually grow and harvest the food you eat every day? And what can be done to improve those conditions, encouraging the next generation of farmers to pick up the reins? But before we kick off today's discussion on fair labor, I want to briefly discuss some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. First up, soda tax. The Oakland City Council voted unanimously to include soda tax on the November ballot. Soda taxes are gaining momentum across the country, and not just because I talk about them every week. In addition to Oakland, soda tax proposals are currently pending in cities like Boulder, Colorado, and Philadelphia. Interestingly, over the past decade, more than 30 cities and states have attempted to pass a soda tax. A few months after Berkeley became the first city to tax soda in 2015, Navajo Nation, a Native American territory, passed an even stricter law, which implements taxes on sugary beverages as well as sweets and snacks and things generally of of minimal to no nutritional value. I have no doubt that we're going to see more of these measures and proposals popping up this summer, and we will be sure to track them here on Eating Matters. Next up, we have a sodium announcement from Nestle. They um, came forward with a commitment to voluntarily reduce sodium and commit to the World Health Organization's suggested limit of 2,000 milligrams per day. Over the past 10 years, Nestle has reduced sodium by 25% in its products and claims it will continue to do so. The Obama administration has been targeting corporations for voluntary sodium reduction, which is putting lots of pressure on food manufacturers to keep public health in mind. 
Um, Next up, Listeria is back in the news, with the CDC reporting yet another in a string of outbreaks this year. This time, city health officials say frozen vegetables produced by CRF Frozen Foods is responsible. The company issued a voluntary recall at the end of April, which last week was then expanded to include all organic and traditional frozen uh, vegetable and fruit products processed in its Pasco, Washington facility since May 1st, 2014. This affects approximately 358 consumer products sold under 42 separate brands in stores across the U.S. and Canada. Bon appetit, everyone. And the USDA is not having any of the House's version uh, of the CNR bill. Last Friday, USDA Communications Director Matt Herrick sent out a lengthy statement to selective media outlets detailing, quote, the, how the bill is harmful to children's health, heaps administrative costs on school, and plans to bury parents in more bureaucratic red tape, all the while subsidizing well-off children at the expense of our less fortunate kids who need help. Herrick suggests that the House reconsider the Senate's bill, which the USDA says is a the Senate's bill, which the USDA says is a quote win for parents, schools, children, and the country's future. Bettina, uh, Bettina Elias Siegel actually provided a great overview of what's been going on in a recent blog post, which we tweeted about today, and you can find on our Twitter feed. Next up, let's talk about what's natural. You may. Remember last fall when Kim Kessler, Eating Matters' brilliant creator, indulged my obsession with food labels, and we did a deep dive into what commonly used labeling terminology like natural really means. Since that time, Democratic lawmakers have been pushing the FDA to do a better job of guiding consumers through the growing lexicon of words on labels. The FDA, in turn, opened up a public commenting period, which officially came to a close yesterday. Over 5,000 comments were submitted to the FDA on the issue with much focus around how the term relates to genetic, uh, genetically engineered ingredients and the organic designation, which is highly regulated. Also in labeling news, the FDA announced yesterday that Kind, maker of the ubiquitous fruit and nut bars, can put the word healthy back on its packaging in relation to its, quote, corporate philosophy, but not as a nutrient claim. This reevaluation of the FDA's position, um, well, was a reevaluation of the FDA's position, who last year issued a warning letter to the company saying that it violated federal rules by labeling its products as healthy. It doesn't just end here, of course. The FDA also stated it will be updating its long-held definition of the word as part of a broader process to update nutrition labels. They certainly have their work cut out for them. Okay, and that wraps it up for our news segment today. Be sure to tweet us or direct message us at Eat Matters HRN if you would like to include a particular policy update or have thoughts on the ones we discussed today. All right, now I want to turn my attention to the topic at hand living wages for farmers. Last week at the 2016 Food Book Fair, those representing restaurant workers, small food business owners, entrepreneurs, and finally farmers discussed their their experiences with advocacy around labor and fair wages for those throughout the food chain at a convening panel. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off, where that thread left off, and dive deeper into the experience of farmers. And I want to be clear that when we're talking about farmers, most of our conversation today will focus on those who own and run the farm, as opposed to the farm laborers. Joining me on the line to do so is Lindsay Shute, the Executive Director of the National Young Farmers Coalition, a platform for young progressive farmers to have a meaningful influence on the structural obstacles in the way of their success. 
And in the studio with me, we have Michael Horowitz, Green Market Director at the nonprofit Grow MIC. Green Market is a program that runs farmers and youth markets, fresh food box pickups, and wholesale farmers markets with the goal of ensuring all New Yorkers have access to the freshest, healthiest local food. Michael was on last week's panel about food and labor at the Food Book Fair, and we're delighted to have him back today. Michael and Lindsay, welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being here. Um, Lindsay, can we um, start with you? Just, I like to start at the beginning and get some kind of basic stats out there. When we're talking about farmers in the U.S., who are we talking about? What, what do they look like in terms of kind of basic demographics? Where are they concentrated, geographically speaking? What do they grow? We can we can take it from sure. there. <laughs> I know, just peppered you the lot right. of questions. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure that I am a master of all of the agricultural, you know, research um, statistics and survey, but I but I can say sort of as a, a general trend, uh, the farmers across the country are aging. The average age is is 58. Actually, uh, farmers over the age of 65 outnumber farmers under the age of 35 by margin of six to one. Um, so the the population is is one that is is aging, and there are very very few young people uh, really well positioned to take the reins and um, own and operate those farm farm businesses. Um, where are most of them? Is there a particular geographic concentration of farmers, like say the Midwest, or um, is it is it something we wouldn't necessarily think about, like New York? I know that's kind of generally right. Speaking. Well, the, you know, farmers in different regions are growing different things, right? So in in the middle of the country, you're going to see um, you know more uh, corn and corn and beans, um, a lot more you know commodity operation um, commodity operations on you know very vast. Um, plains in the plain state. In the Northeast, um, really what we're known for is specialty crops, and I'm sure um, Michael has lots of experience with this as a green market growers. Um, and, you know, around cities, you'll see that as well, a lot of uh, specialty crops. And specialty crops, is, you know, kind of silly, but specialty crops are the stuff that, you know, you eat, right? <laughs> like, eat directly. So, you know, tomatoes, um, you know, all this stuff. We have a diversified organic farm, anything that you would get in a CSA box would be more or less a specialty crop. Um, so vegetables. And that's stuff, vegetables, right? Vegetables, Dairy. fruit, um, Dairy. Uh, that, that type of thing. So those, those um, types of farms are oftentimes located within, you know, one to 200 miles of cities because that's where those farms have been able to thrive and, and keep in business because they have those direct market opportunities. Um, and then one one final kind of overview question for you: Are are most of the farms in the U.S. today um, small, mid-size, large? Well, it, or does it, it depend on the geography? It depends on, on how you look at the statistics um, that USA, USDA um, puts out there, right? So a lot of um, you know individuals are running farm businesses, but they're highly unprofitable because they're really not meant to be. They're um, really like very um, low-earning um, hobby farms. Mm-hmm. And those farms sort of get up, caught up in the, the larger, um, you know, farm farm picture and can sometimes distort some of, you know, the statistics overall. But, um, you know, it's it said that about 200,000 farms overall are producing, you know, the vast 
majority of food that Americans are actually eating, but there are 2 million farms um, nationwide. Wow. Okay. Well, I want to get back to that So, so there are many, many very, very small farms. Is what, I'm, what I'm trying to say, but many of those are, you know, grossing one to $2,000 a year. They're not, um, like, income-generating sort of family farms that you, you might be thinking about where, you know, someone's income, you know, is being supported in a real way by, by um, you know, one or two um, people working on the farm. Okay. And Michael, what does a typical green market farmer look like? Are they, do they follow a similar trend based on what Lindsay said? There is no typical there green market farmer. There is no typical farmer. farmer. No. <laughs> um, you know, some stats are that about 25% of our growers have been with us for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Another 25% have been with us for less than 12 years. Um, our average age is, is very similar to that of the United States. It's about 55, 56 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, farm size, the median farm size is about 85 acres. We have farmers that are growing in a warehouse in Brooklyn, and we have a 1,000-acre livestock farms. But the majority are smaller to midsize. And I don't. I, I think those terms are, are misused or, yeah. or misleading. Can we, can we I, unpack what they mean? Well, I think, the, I mean, Lindsay can probably tell you this better, but I think the USDA has uh, monetary definitions as, as well as acreage definitions. Uh, I think that's a little bit skewed here in the Northeast, particularly regarding direct marketers. We have a farmer who's growing on an acre and a half in Staten Island that can produce $125,000 a year of income annually. Wow. Uh, He's got it down. He's a terrific farmer. Diversified vegetables. Um, You know, specialized Mexican crops selling into his neighbors in Staten Island. Mm -hmm. Um, So he has been able to uh, bring his skill set from another country and adapt it here to the Northeast. I identify and understand his market and does very successfully. Uh, so but there really is no, I, there's no typical green market grower. The, the overwhelming majority of our growers are diversified vegetable mm-hmm. growers like, like Lindsay suggested in the Northeast. We, but whatever can be grown, caught, harvested, processed, baked here in the Northeast, it's at the market. There's over 13,000 individual varieties at, at market. Wow. Um, you know, livestock, fish included. And by market, you mean the green markets that are throughout the New York City area? Correct. We operate 54 individual market locations, a little over 2,500 times annually. Wow. Okay. Um, Lindsay, can we, um, can you tell us uh, again, like what an average wage is for small, mid-sized, large-scale farmers, you know, generally speaking, like how um, are most able to earn a middle-class salary? Well, I can tell you from our growers um, that we work with, you know, we don't really have perfect uh, data on what, you know, the the typical young and beginning farmer is making. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say just anecdotally, I know that, you know, many of them are starting out, um, you know, you know, making fifteen to twenty thousand dollars their their first year. The first year is really expensive. Um, is that net it's, or gross? It's pretty tough. That would be a net. That's like what they would be taking okay. home. Um, okay. You know, for the year, uh, getting a farm business off the ground is 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 expensive. It's capital intensive, um, and you you can't afford to pay yourself much. So that's what we're seeing sort of in those in those first years. But then, you know, it it is often the case that once people get their their business up and running, they get their um, systems established and more efficient, 
uh, they're able to, to make a, a living wage themselves. Um, they're able to make, um, you know, middle class, you know, 50000 to to $100,000. I mean, that's really sort of the, you know, sweet spot where we're trying to, um, you know, make it possible for, for farmers to be in that, that income bracket where, you know, they're able to, you know, provide for themselves, provide for a family. Okay. Well, one thing I would just add. Yeah, add away. Is that I think once you factor in the number of hours that a farmer is working, oh, they may be netting a certain number. Yeah. And it may sound like thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars, but when you break it down to an hourly wage, I think the overwhelming majority are not earning a living wage. Right. Um, unfortunately. I don't think most farmers actually factor in their own labor costs. So they have to work significantly longer days. They're working... 20, you know, seven days a week. Six to seven days a week, eight to ten months out of the year. Um, and these are long, hard days. Yeah, physical labor. Yeah. Um, we, yeah we, we, had we, more... never, we never talk about what the farmer makes really on an hourly basis because, I mean, Michael's exactly right. I mean, I, I can say in the case of my husband, I mean, he, Ben, who is a full-time farmer in, in our household, I mean, he works. Um, he might take off a couple weeks in January, but, you know, it's a, it's a year-round job, and, you know, he's often up much later on the computer than I am, you know, doing payroll, and he's, you know, back up at, you know, with his with with his career at seven, so it it is it's you really it's difficult to think it, about it. On an uh, yeah, by basis. an hourly basis. Are yeah. there certain? Do you find in your experiences that the farmers in the Northeast, for instance, growing quote specialty crops, which I I can't believe that that's the official designation for how we talk about fruits and vegetables in this country that are edible, um, but for for those kinds of um, farm farmers versus those farmers in say the Midwest growing uh, commodity crops like corn? Well, commodity crop growing is far more mechanized okay. and centers around monocropping. I think di small diversified growers are far more labor intense. Okay. If they're using more sustainable growing practices, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more hands in involved in the weeding and the, in the planting um, and the maintenance of, of those products. So it, there is a significant difference in the intensity of, of, of labor needs. Okay. We, had a, we had a group of farm, a, a new farm to, to Green Market last year, and there were four farmers working together. Mm -hmm. And when they real, finally actually calculated their hourly income, they realized that they got a 100% raise when it was tomato season. They went from making a dollar an hour to $2 an hour. Oh. Uh, and that really, when they saw that, <laughs> both the increase, how amazed they were, but also finally were able to recognize how much work is going in right. to them sustaining their farm. So what do we do to encourage the, uh, I mean, it seems like if you got two options, you're going to maybe want to go with the, to grow the crop that's a little bit less labor intensive. And so you, and you can get potentially more return on that. Is that, is that true? Lindsay, you want to take that one? Um, sure. Uh, yes. I mean, you um, can earn much, much more uh, doing doing specialty crops. I mean, you know, as, as Michael said, the farmer with a, I think you said an acre and a half, is making, you know, grossing, I assume that that's what that would be, um, Correct. Uh, you know, over $100,000, right? 
Um, and that is definitely possible with, with specialty crops, and it is definitely not possible, you know, in a, in a commodity operation. The business model of a specialty crop grower is just wildly different than, you know, what, what a commodity um, grower is um, is is doing. So, you know, there's, they're running, you know, thousands of acres, whereas, you know, a specialty crop grower might be doing one acre. We have um, about 40 acres under production um, at our farm. So they're, you know, much, oftentimes much, um, you know, smaller operations, but their costs can be significantly higher. But they're, you know, pot, what they're making per acre is also significantly higher. Okay. Okay. Um, Michael, any other kind of common myths that you hear about with regard to farmers and living living wages that you personally want to debunk? Well, I, I think that there can, it is a somewhat of a misconception of what gross means as compared to a farmer's net. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a farmer who grosses, call it a million dollars a year. Okay. His net is about 35. His his wife works off farm. 35,000. 35,000. Yeah. And when you see that number a million, that's a, that's a big number. Right. But again, when you look at what he is taking home each year, yeah. $35,000 is not a, a huge amount of money. No. Um, and so I think that there is this misconception around how, how much profit there is in, in local agriculture. I also think that pe- there are some people who go into agriculture thinking that it's much easier and much more lucra- right. lucrative than, and, than it actually is. And once they realize how hard it is to, to, to make a living, they, it doesn't last very long. Who are those people who think farming is easy and, and a great way to make a fast <laughs> buck? <laughs> I am biting my tongue. On, 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 on. We have special names for them in our office, but I... I I don't think that's appropriate for for the air. All right. Well, we're going to take a really quick commercial break where I'm going to make Michael tell me um, off air what some of those some of those words are. Um, But we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. And then when we get back, we'll be digging deeper into the sort of structural obstacles that farmers have to contend with on a daily basis and what policies uh, exacerbate those barriers. Um, All right. More in a minute. just your garden it's the way you live and there's so much to know but you have help bonnie plants now with bonnie's app homegrown you can learn about veggie and herb varieties track and record your garden with photos and notes share on facebook and twitter and so much more how'd you ever grow without it get homegrown with bonnie plants for iphone and android the more you know the better you can grow with bonnie 
And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Michael Hurwitz from GrowMIC and Lindsay Shute from the National Young Farmers Coalition about fair and living wages for farmers. Um, Lindsay, what are some of the, I want to kind of really get into some of the policy pieces now. So what are some of the major policies and pieces of legislation that govern livable wages for farmers? Um, and what, in your experience, are some of the mechanisms that you've witnessed that have been successful to ensure farmers um, can earn a living wage? Right. Well, the success of a farmer uh, very much depends on, you know, not just how good they're, they are at growing whatever they want to grow or raising livestock. Um, there's external factors that have a huge effect um, on, on their success. You know, the, ba- the basic sort of thing is how much does their land cost, what their mortgage payment might be, or if they're able to find um, access to affordable land via a long-term lease. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that really affects their success is you know, whether they have student loans or not. Hmm. Um, that can be a major issue because it affects their ability to um, borrow additional capital that will enable them to grow their farm, um, maybe you know, buy land, buy that tractor that will you know, make them more efficient, their operation more efficient and able to grow more acres and, and make um, a, a living wage. Um, so those are the types of things, those structural issues are really what we focus on at Young Farmers Coalition. And, of course, the farm bill is the big thing that does definitely affect services to farmers, grant opportunities to farmers, loan opportunities to farmers. That's sort of the big piece of legislation. Um, and within that, Young Farmers Coalition has been focusing um, on, a, on a bunch of things, but specifically on land, on land conservation programs. And this is something we've been focusing on here in New York State as well, um, targeting those land conservation programs um, toward um, programs that land trusts um, are running on the ground that um, help uh, farmers essentially gain access to affordable land through a conservation easement, a working farm easement. It's something that is done now in Vermont, Massachusetts, and actually the practice is spreading here in New York State and and across the country. It's a special type of conservation easement that makes land permanently affordable. So we have been advocating for uh, state and federal funding for this. Right now, New York State does not fund these types of conservation easements, um, which is a real shame because there's so much land that you know, in transition right now. Another thing is, is student loans. We introduced a bill um, on the federal side that would add farmers to the public service loan forgiveness program. So it would help them uh, manage their debt payments um, while they're getting their, their farm started. And if they haven't paid it off within 10 years of making you know, income-based payments, they will be eligible for, for loan forgiveness. It's the same type of program that's offered for nurses, doctors, teachers, nonprofit um, employees, you know, in-demand careers that um, generally receive pretty low wages. Um, Michael, are you? Does Grow My Seed do anything um, locally to ins- ensure the livable wages for farmers, or how how does the green market basically help support farmers? Well, eighty-five percent of our farmers would tell you they'd be out of business if they did not have the green market. Wow, as their main mechanism for generating income. That if they had to rely on the wholesale industry, they would be out of business. Wow. And so looking at, a, you know, on the, on the macro level, it's a values paradigm. We, our government, our land-grant universities have been pushing cheap food uh-huh. for generations. 
And they have. So we, the public wants and expects food to be cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, it costs a lot of money to grow good food. And when that food is not subsidized, it has an appearance of being more expensive and, and can be more expensive. Now, fortunately, our, our markets are, are rather price competitive to their local store counterparts when you compare apples to apples. Right? Tyson chicken is not the same thing as pasture-raised chicken. Once, right. once you start looking at how at, at prices of, of apples and potatoes and, and your staples and you compare the, uh, our markets and you can compare supermarkets, you'll find that what, there's no better value because we're price competitive mm-hmm. and the, your product is going to last longer when you're buying it fresh and not something that's been shipped mm-hmm. and that's been packaged for, for shipping and, and for travel and for, to be somewhat shelf-stable. Um, so the main thing that we do to support our growers is provide them with vibrant markets. We also have a farm roots program that provides technical assistance to our growers, works with them on market channel assessments, uh, works with them on, on marketing plans, understanding consumer behavior, recommending things in terms of expanding a wholesale channel, expanding mm-hmm. uh, poten- potential restaurants, looking at incentives for, for customers and, and reward pro- programs. So it's, I think it's a combination of, one, providing the mechanism for them to have a, a place to sell, mm-hmm. and at the same time supporting those business specific businesses based on their, their markets and, and what they're good at. Um, how much would this change, do you think, if we had more subsidies at the federal level for these specialty crops as opposed to commodity crops? Well, again, I mean, we subsidized to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars right. baseball stadiums and right. have done that twice in this city. We subsidize yeah. oil and gas. These would not otherwise be sustainable businesses. So do we want to support healthy food and good food and, and farmland preservation and environmentally sound practices? Or do we want to support you know commodity farmers who then that food is processed into food that is killing us. Right. Um, do you ever, I'm, I, so I want to ask you a question, Michael, about the farm owners who it seems like themselves can be struggling uh, to make en- ends meet, which I imagine also kind of puts them at risk for, for their, their workers at risk for not being able to make a livable wage also. So I'm, I'm curious if, if your organization does anything or has any response to um, campaigns like the Fight for 15 and kind of how you respond to some of your farmers if, if they do say things like raising the minimum wage might put me out of business. Well, we think that, you know, when you asked at the beginning, what's the typical green market farmer? There's right. one thing that unites the t- all, all green market growers. Yeah is that they are also farm laborers. They are also working in the fields alongside the folks that they hired to be there. We think that all boats need to be lifted, right? right? Mm -hmm. And that all farmers and laborers need to be earning more money and that the focus should be on how all of them thrive and how all of them can be supported uh, to, to do that. So regardless of what the campaign is, I think as long as that is the message... I think as long as advocates for farming community understand that both farmer, farm owner and farm worker, that their faiths are, are linked, mm-hmm. that that's the priority. So our orchards this year, we know that they, in New York State, lost about 100% of their stone fruit crop, 
and they're going to figure out what apples and pears are left in the, in the coming weeks. There's going to be a lot less income for those growers, which means that who they've hired for the last 25 years are also going to make less money. We have one grower uh, in Hudson Valley, one, one orchard grower, who actually called his crew chief in Jamaica and said, here's the deal. We're down, we're, we're, we're looking at it right now at 50% less income this year. Mm-hmm. Should we shorten hours or should we have less of the crew come up this year and um, so that you guys can, can make what you're accustomed to? Mm-hmm. And, and left that decision to be co- made collectively with his crew chief. And they chose that everyone would take a hit this year so that everyone could have the opportunity to be here and, and earn a living. And they did that collaboratively. They did that together. Other crew chiefs might make different decisions. But the point is, farmer, farm owner, and farmer alike will be earning less money this year because of the weather. Hmm. Uh, okay, well, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to wrap it up in, in just a minute. But I want to end, Lindsay, with one question. I'm gonna ask you both. But first, um, Lindsay, you can k- kick us off. Um, do you have any advice for our listeners today who are interested in supporting a food system that ensures uh, fair wages for farmers? And uh, what what can we be doing now as consumers? The easiest thing is to go and and shop at one of Michael's markets. So um, check out the list of CSAs, um, you know, that that Just Food features. I mean, buy local really is like the the easiest and and best thing to do. Maybe that's really obvious and people say it, but you just have to say it again. I mean, it's true. Every um, every purchase counts and does, you know, support these these local farms. They shouldn't be bringing food back up to the Hudson Valley or New Jersey or Connecticut or wherever they're going going back to. You know, they should be able to sell um, everything they grow in New York City. And so, you know, having a robust market for that is, is essential. All right. Michael, anything other than... You know, I'd like to say that it, hopefully most of us three times a day are voting with our dollars. Yeah. Right? And how we choose to spend our money. And to better understand how our food choices impact growers, how they impact the environment and, and climate, um, and to question more why certain food is cheap rather than why some other food has price tags. Mm-hmm. That's what I would encourage folks out there to be doing. All right. Okay, we're going to leave it there for a conversation on food and labor today. Michael and Lindsay, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right, and with that amazing sound effect. (laughs) That's right, it's time for our new segment, The Startup of the Week, where we feature an innovative and exciting new food business and organization uh, at the end of each episode. With that, I'm pleased to introduce Eileen Gordon Chiarello from Barnraiser, which is a discovery and crowdfunding platform for projects that promote health and sustainability in the food system. Eileen, welcome to the show. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome, and with and with such exciting sound effects, also, <laughs> um, just for you. Uh, um, okay, can we? Can you just uh, kick us off and tell us a, a little bit about when you officially launched Barnraiser and why? And uh, maybe for our listeners, what do you mean by a discovery platform? Absolutely. So Barnraiser is a little bit more than a year old, and we really built it because of a deep understanding and excitement around the idea that 80 or over 80 million Americans 
already have a preference to choose things that are better for them, better for the planet, and certainly better for the people that are producing them. And so BarnRaiser was launched to allow all of us simple ways to engage and help shape, you know, the change in how we farm, how we eat, and how we live. Um, what you can do there is you can discover really interesting um, and innovative makers, um, mm-hmm. share their stories for the things that you care about, and when they need it, they may be crowdfunding for um, some of their projects or new products, mm-hmm. and find the things that you prefer to support and buy. So the idea is that every little action counts toward us being active uh, consumers in reshaping our food destiny, and that there are a lot of joyous celebratory ways we can do that. Very on point with, um, I think, the final advice from Michael and Lindsay in terms of voting with your dollars. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit more about how the site works and what are some of the, if you have them, general eligibility criteria for a project to be posted? Well, we think it's uh, really important for anybody who is moving the needle in the right direction in a small, medium, or a large way to be invited in. Um, and the reason for that is that many, many of us are starting our journey toward um, more active engagement in what we eat, who it comes from, and how it's produced. Mm-hmm. We could be starting it from a lot of different personal angles. So we have hosted the seven-year-old Cub Scout from Ohio who wanted to become a mushroom farmer in his backyard. <laughs> and after his barn raiser project, he ended up on the Steve Harvey show. <sighs> now, you might say that's not making a huge impact in the change in our food system, and I would say it is. So for us to have a really robust community um, where we are hosting basically um, an ever-involved fabric of the stories of the front lines of how America is changing, how it farms, how it eats, and how it lives. And that inspiration and innovation is everywhere, and it comes in all different shapes and sizes. Let's talk numbers. Can you you give me a sense of the platform's success to date? So how many projects do you typically have posted at any given time? What's the success rate? How how much money has a platform raised? I'm Absolutely. Just peppering so, you with questions. <laughs> we, in our first year, we have hosted projects in over 40 states. We are very proud to say. Wow. Yeah. Um, we have a 65% funding success rate. Um, the industry standard is between 30 and 40, but oh, wow. in our category is under 30 on the larger, more generalist platforms. Um, so we're very proud of that, and people on average raise anywhere between nine and 15,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no limit to what they can raise on the platform in terms of size. Um, but for us, uh, helping the community um, master the tool of engaging who they know and who might want to know about them in the service of growing their business or their community if they're a nonprofit is really important. So we really work hard on that success metric and partnering with people to put the best project out there and master the kind of communication strategy. And can um, you, oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, can um, yeah. <laughs> um, No, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about um, the success metrics, and um, we have done projects in categories across the movement, which is also really important to us. Everything from kind of the urban farming, um, people who are doing really amazing work in the nonprofit sector, 
uh, for things like food deserts and nutrition. Um, we have done a lot of projects for launching food companies and a lot of projects for farms themselves, as well as education and nutrition projects, books, applications, mobile apps, other forms of media. Um, so we also love the fact that there's a lot of diversity in the types of projects that have been hosted on Barn Raiser. So, so, so ranging from the kind of fun, celebratory um, to the, the more intensive in terms of trying to make a, a, a change in the food system. You yeah, can, I can, can give you a couple examples of yeah. projects that are live now. You yeah. know, there's a, a farm-to-grocery project for uh, remodeling a grocery store in the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans mm -hmm. and having an integrated approach to the farming and the store in that community, um, owned and operated by that community. Wow. Um, there's a mobile application that maps restaurants with the farm-to-table farm sources that they use most. Um, there's a uh, project called Good Food for Hudson, which is providing families in the Hudson Valley with nutritious um, fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And then one that I say where innovation is everywhere and nothing surprises us anymore, there's a project based in Costa Rica, to, which is actually really interesting, to take recycled plastic out of the ocean and huh. create through 3D printing new parts for their aquaponics facility. Oh. Um, which will, in part, make the community less vulnerable to things like water issues. But it also happens to be part of a um, turtle preserve. Wow. There's a lot going on <laughs> there. cleaning up the ocean for the turtles. <laughs> yeah. They're using the parts to produce food in a very sustainable way for their local community, and they're dealing with the water crisis all at once. Wow. So innovation is everywhere. Um, <laughs> We love our food products. I love the Regrained story, which is a, a two guys who've known each other since Hebrew school and re-met in uh, college and discovered that lots of grains are thrown away during the microbrewing process. Mm -hmm. But those grains are highly nutritious. And, you know, decades ago, beer would have been made closer to farms and those grains would have been used in the whole ecosystem. So... They created a wonderful um, brand of um, highly nutritious bars out of the spent grains from microbrewing. Wow. <laughs> really cool, very tasty, very innovative, and really dealing with food waste. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have time for one final question. What is an accomplishment um, that, that, that you can point to that you're most proud of that Barn Razor has made possible? I'm most proud of the uh, fact that Barn Raiser has demonstrated to the people who are really grinding it out day in and day out to produce our food that the communities can stand behind them. They're interested in their stories, intrigued by what they know and their wisdom, and will step up and celebrate them, share them widely, and fund them so that they can um, continue to build sustainable, successful businesses for us. Great. All right. So with that, I'm going to I'm going to wrap up the show to, for, for today. But for more information on um, Barn Razor and to browse through existing projects, make sure to go to brown uh, barnraiser.us. 
Um, thank you so much to Michael Horowitz, Lindsay Shute, and Eileen Gordon Chiarello for coming on the show, and to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from the brilliant Taylor Lancet and Austin Brynarski. I uh, also want to give a shout out to Taylor. It's her birthday today, so happy birthday, Taylor. Show music is by Tim Archer, and our engineer is David Tedashore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitchers. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook, and be sure to find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 